I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of The Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from the Pavan from William Law's Royal Consorts, Set 9, which we used in our audiobook performance of John Milton's Comus, which is available on this podcast feed. That performance and this podcast are supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Killam Trust, York University, the Spearmin Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and individual donors. Deanne Williams is Professor in English at York University, a Fellow of the Centre for Renaissance and Reformation Studies, and a member of the College of New Scholars, Artists and Scientists of the Royal Society of Canada. She was dramaturge for our production of Comus, has written extensively on girl performers in the early modern period, and dedicates a chapter to Milton's character of the Lady in her book, Shakespeare and the Performance of Girlhood, published by Palgrave. Our Comus performance project, indeed, had its genesis in the annual Comus Day events, which she organizes at York University in Toronto. She and I discussed what we learned about Milton, Comus, the Lady, and the Brothers in preparing the performance. Now, Deanne, this is our second chat about Comus that you and I have done. Um, We were chatting during our Mask and Drama series. We were chatting about Comus in a more general sense. Now that we've recorded the whole thing as a sort of radio play, what do you think you've learned about it that we didn't know, that we may have even been wrong about during our first chat? Well, I think one of the things that was uh, really striking to me um, in, you know, in, in, in the performance of Comus was the part of the elder brother, which I had always thought of as kind of a sort of a minor supporting role, but is it, it is in fact a very long role, many more lines in fact than the lady. And so this taught me uh, some things about, you know, the, the sort of the, um, the family politics in the mask, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a as a parent of uh, two siblings, uh, you know, I'm very uh, familiar with an older the, girl and a younger brother, right? And the the issues of of, of sibling rivalry. So <laughs> does you know does the longer part is it because you know you don't have to have same same, but there needs to be parity. So does the longer part of the elder brother represent a kind of like you know. Uh, sort of an equal measure of importance to the ladies, you know, extravagant um, singing um, and shorter speeches, but also extremely rhetorically impressive. You say they're shorter speeches. They're shorter than the brothers. They're still very long uh, speeches. They're very long. And certainly in in the wider historical context of girls on, on early English stages and girls speaking on early English stages, Alice Edgerton's performance as the lady is a, uh, is significant because of the length and depth and uh, sophistication of the speeches. And she may have had, uh, as we've talked about in the other episode, more dancing on display as well, because she danced as a uh, Alice, is her name, who played the lady. Uh, She danced in uh, court masks, so we can't know that. Her singing's on display, her dancing may have been on display. The brother has some very long argumentative speeches, and needs to know how to pronounce all those 
classical figures. If early modern education is vocational, his job is going to be standing up in the House of Lords, maybe standing up in the Privy Council and arguing things in this rhetorical way. So that he would need to have that, be trained for that, and this might be part of his training. Exactly, making all those learned classical allusions. One of my you know, major jobs as dramaturg was working on the pronunciation of the classical names, you know, Minerva, Daphne, those are straight, straightforward, but what about, uh, you know, Leucothea and Parthenope, you know, I was, I was getting in touch with my inner Hermione Granger saying, you know, not Wingardium Leviosa, Leviosa, you're getting it wrong. <laughs> You no, know, no, it's all through history. No, it all through history. You don't want to get those wrong, especially if you're speaking in public in Parliament. Yes, right? ex- yeah, exactly. You want so, to get your your classical allusions and the pronunciation. So the right. little the little uh, boy who was eleven, John yes. Edward John Junior, uh, was only eleven and had to learn these huge speeches. Let me just see how many lines it is here. Yeah, some uh, the very long speeches of fifty nine lines, fifty eight, fifty nine lines in his first big speech about chastity. But the, the ladies' speeches are not that much shorter, but still uh, shorter and less argumentative. Uh, Shakespeare soliloquy is typically about 30 or 40 lines. The um, elder brother goes on for 50-odd, which is a very long... That's interesting. Very long. Uh, the longest Shakespeare soliloquies are in the 70s, low 70s. Masks do tend to have longer speeches in honor of something heroic Mm. virtue i think goes on for uh, some 70 lines in mask of queens Mm. by ben johnson which Mm. is a court mask 1610 i think or something like that the attendant spirits first speech is 90 odd lines and that doesn't even include his song that he's just done we say in in the first um chat we had about comus we did talk about how the professional actors who you'd expect to be able to memorize 70 lines of careful argument, they would be doing these sort of things on the court mask stage. And here we have children, 11-year-old, 13-year-old, having to do the same sort of thing. That's really interesting because, you know, we think about the um, often the opposition between the visual and the verbal on Renaissance stages, but... I actually think we can explain those long speeches in the masks actually uh, through the visual experience of the mask, which is to say that, you know, because masks are sort of processional uh, and very visual, um, as Ben Johnson elaborated the genre of the mask, you know, as a writer, he wanted to offer analysis and, and theory to go along with the visual experience of the mask. So he would write speeches for mask characters that would describe queens or various participants of the mask in great detail in order to explain their their symbolic meaning. Mm-hmm. This isn't really what's going on per se in Milton's mask, but it does provide a kind of a precedent for the the long speechifying that by this stage in the 17th century has become associated with the mask, which is a, a genre that had its origins in, in dancing um, mm-hmm. and costumes. And there is, in, in rhetoric at the time, there is a series of gestures, formal and formalized gestures, 
that would be visual that we don't have mm -hmm. nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you hold your hands a certain way for penance and you hold your hands a certain way for this. So that would also be part of the visual aspect of the mask when delivering these very formally rhetorical speeches. Now we used in our performance, in our recording, the Bridgewater manuscript version of Comus, which seems to have been the performance manuscript, uh, which differs in a number of ways from the printed versions of 1637 and later, which are sort of revised. They have lo even longer speeches. One of the things that's important to me is that the song that comes at the very end of the printed versions is at the very beginning, the Attendant Spirit introductory song. And the invocation of the river goddess Sabrina is passed between the attendant spirit and the two brothers, rather than being all given to the attendant spirit as it is in the printed versions. So they've got all those places and persons to pronounce properly, as you say. One of the things you can you can think about too in this context is the way that, uh, you know, we can think about it as kind of, you know, showing off for uh, for the father, showing off what the children have been learning, you know, mm -hmm. like like a kind of parent teacher night at a at an elementary school or a high school where the children get to showcase what they've been, what, what kind of work they've been doing. And of course, you know, in the case of, of Bridgewater, it's also, you know, you know, the investment he's made mm -hmm. in his in his children's education. So, you know, if you think about it, you've got music on display, you've also got rhetoric on display, you've got singing on display, you have variety of different uh, subjects that the children have been uh, studying. And the dancing, which is with the footwork of which is closely associated with fencing at the time. The dance master and the fencing master were often, uh, very often the same person. Of course, we often like think about dancing as the last thing, you know, we have to, oh, and don't forget that the masks had dancing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course the masks, they had their origin in dancing. Mm -hmm. um, and they, and the mask is itself the origin of the ballet. But the dance was the, was the very most important part of, of the experience. The other things, the declamations, uh, the singing, uh, they, they, were, they were secondary. So masks are not dramas in that way. We'd have much right. more dialogue. There's very little people bouncing ideas off people in this. Yeah, exactly. We have, in fact, a very skewed vision of what the mask is because what remains to us are, you know, is the words. The, the words remain to us, not the, 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 the costumes. We have some designs. We have some, um, you know, we have some stage designs um, by Inigo Jones. But for the most part, what it really remains... For to us is the language, but mm -hmm. the masks were above all a visual experience. There's some songs um, and but, yeah. a little dance music. Um, we can't know what was danced to it is very yeah. difficult to know. But it's the speeches that survived. Mm -hmm. Now a soliloquy is sometimes said, you may think this is not true in fact, is often a window into the thoughts of a character in Shakespeare and in drama. It's a way of we can hear what they're thinking, hear that what their emotions are about something, which these speeches tend not to be. So it, do you think that Shakespeare's late plays, which are influenced by court masks and are still a couple of decades before this, do you think that Shakespeare's late plays, the longer speeches in there, do you think they're different to say tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow or any of those big ones? I think in Shakespeare, those soliloquies are in response to an experience of conflict that's happening within the drama. 
um, they're a, a, a you know they're a kind of a, a, a pensée d'escalier you know um, after the other characters have left and there's a meditation on what has happened that's a very different experience from what we have with the the soliloquies if we want to call them that in Milton's Comus where they're more kind of a statement of identity this is who mm -hmm. I am this is where I am in the case of the lady in terms of Shakespeare's late plays, I think I would I would connect them more to the the dramatic soliloquies that we see throughout Shakespeare's careers, rather than the kinds of philosophical statements of uh, of, of sort of the essence of who they are, which is more what we see in Milton. We have the attendant spirit. This is who I am. Which is the the attendant's first big speech is um, sort of setting the stage. Yeah. Yep. The attendant spirit's first big speech yep. is sort of like Gower in Pericles, right? Yep. Yeah. where he comes in at the beginning and explains that's 40 odd lines. Yeah. yeah. You know, Comus's first speech is is a is a, an articulation of his selfhood, but then his second long speech is is a dramatic speech in response to the experience of um, of, he of hearing, hearing yeah. yeah, of hearing the lady and and a meditation on that kind of contact. And if you haven't listened to our performance of Comus yet, don't be scared off by us talking about the long speeches. Because every five or ten minutes, there's a piece of music. That's a way these things are broken up. That's a way that makes them... And when you've had a ten-minute lecture on chastity, then you may wish for, uh, you know, ten minutes of dance music. So there's not, in a mask, the same sort of dramatic tension and resolution that we might see in a play. That's absolutely the case. When we were, um, after one of our rehearsals, we were chatting with um, Paul Hopkins, who plays Comus, and he made this really interesting remark. He said, you know, it's so frustrating to me because there isn't a showdown. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he was kind of envisioning a kind of a, you know, an epic battle, you know, between Comus and the brothers that would be like, you know, like Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Or, or Achilles and Hector uh, arguing for five minutes b before they uh, get into uh, the chasing each other around the city in the Iliad. Exactly. I think Paul found it was a bit of a of a letdown, right? That you know that there wasn't a there wasn't a showdown. There was just a little well, it's like a little a little skirmish, a, a minor skirmish, a scuffle. <laughs> a scuffle. But we've got to get we've got to get right on to the to the goddess's song. It's important to get to the next piece of music, in my opinion. But I'm a musician, so they are. Well, yeah. I mean, that's exactly right, and it, that tells you where the, where the priorities are in the mask, right? It's not, it's not about, it's not about this kind of scuffle, but then of course that is the nature of the mask itself. And if we want to perhaps remind our listeners as well of Stephen Orgel's wonderful account of the mask that he did for us in our podcast. Exactly. Scroll back two more episodes beyond me and Deanne talking about Comus and listen to Stephen Orgel. Go and listen to all our podcasts. Yeah, but definitely listen to Stephen. Um, he he spoke in his in his podcast about how that how there isn't that kind of there isn't a real it's not a real tangle the the, the conflict is always always already resolved it's always going to be that the king is the embodiment of goodness and light and order and harmony mm -hmm. and the anti mask as a minor diversion in the unfolding of the greatness of uh, or, or it's was it's the king in in court mask it's the king in this one it's well educated and well disciplined children that are going to save us. There's nothing better than that. That was Deanne Williams in conversation with me, John Edwards. Scroll back in the podcast feed to listen to the whole of Comus, if you haven't already, and you'll also find the dance music we recorded for it, as well as the earlier episodes we mentioned. 
Check musiciansinordinary.ca for information about our performers and our podcast series, and deannewilliams.com for information about her work. Subscribe to our podcast for more music and poetry of the 16th and 17th century and more chat about it. And if you would like to help support these podcasts, please go to musiciansinordinary.ca and click through to canadahelps.org.